Our first reading is taken from Matthew chapter 19, verses 1 to 6, and can be found on the Pew Bibles, in the Pew Bibles on page 986. So Matthew chapter 19, starting at verse 1. When Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and went into the region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan. Large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female, and said, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Good morning. The second reading is from Genesis chapter 2. And I'm actually going to be reading from verse 18, which is on page 4 of the Church Bibles. Genesis chapter 2, starting at verse 18. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Thank you very much, Sarah, for reading to us. I'd love you all to keep um, Genesis chapter 2 open in, in front of you. Um, and that is not um, me just 
saying that at the start of the service of sermon, because I always say that at the start of the sermon. It's important for us that we come together to the Bible and that the Bible is over us. I'm not speaking on a Sunday morning six feet above contradiction. I am visually at least meant to be under the Bible as we all are. And we might even come to one or two different conclusions as we search Scripture together. I want to say that is fair play. Some things the Bible is very, very clear on. Some things I will hold forth on pretty boldly from the pulpit. Um, Don't necessarily feel that doesn't mean that you can't study the Bible and see and you can check it out in Scripture yourself. Um, That's my preamble before we pray to uh, ask God to help us to all come under his word and study it together carefully as we look at it. We pray, Father, for that willingness to search the scriptures this morning and for each one of us here to allow what you say to um, have a bearing on our lives, on our thinking, on our discussion, on our obedience, uh, in areas where we need to change the way we think or live. Please be gracious to us and give us the courage to do that. We pray for your help, Heavenly Father. Uh, We're bereft without it, but we thank you that you promise to lead us as we turn to the Bible now. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're continuing this series in the early chapters of Genesis, and this week, uh, even though Sarah read from a bit we looked at last week, um, we're really focusing on verses 24 and 25, okay? And I'm calling it the marriage blueprint. Um, I asked Sarah to read or over what we looked at last week because I felt like I slightly sold you short on good news last week because the partnership of the man and the woman that we looked at is presented as, as very good news. It's a provision, a generous provision of a God who loves his people and wants them, men and women, to flourish um, and I assume that the logic of what we had and looked at last week is that men on their own are not able to flourish as fully as God would wish, just as women on their own are not able to flourish as fully as uh, we might wish. Together, within the partnership that God provides, then there are great possibilities, wonderful possibilities, that our flat sides as men or flat sides as women actually need the, uh, the, the generous gift of God in that partnership to uh, be the best we can be and to fulfill that commission he gave us. I, I didn't sort of sell it as positively as I should have done uh, last week. And I think Adam is clearly um, very excited. He, he wants to see it as good news. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She'll be called woman for she was taken out of man. It's an outburst of poetry Call it song if you want, that it shows how joyful he is at that point. Now, after that joyful outburst of the uh, man when the woman was created, we read verses 24 and 25. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Now, as we saw, those are words which Jesus himself quoted when he was being quizzed about marriage. In fact, he didn't just quote them, he quoted them as the word of God. And as they occur 
as they do occur before the fall, effectively they establish the pattern of marriage forever. So that is my first heading today, the pattern of marriage, because marriage is not just some social phase which is undergoing evolution. We can't just say, well, maybe it worked in the past, but we've moved on today, and so we need to dismantle it and replace it with something more flexible that suits us better. No, according to these verses, according to Jesus' understanding of these verses, the man and the woman were made to follow a God-ordained definite pattern. Now, the first element in that pattern is this. It's for the man to leave his father and mother. So you see that in verse 24. That's why a man leaves his father and mother. I suppose it is the man who's referred to since I take it the newborn was formed at his initiative and impetus. And the man's got to overturn decisively the highest loyalty that he has to his parents, to leave that behind physically, geographically, mentally, uh, emotionally, so that he can give himself to what must now be an even higher loyalty. When you think how highly prized the relationship with your parents is in the Bible, that is no mean thing. You don't just overturn that relationship on a whim. I try and make it a, a rule in pre-marriage counselling to cover this aspect, the leaving in what will be happening, because too often a marriage runs into trouble later on simply because one of the marriage partners hasn't cut the ties sufficiently with a parent for their spouse to feel that they are now number one. Or it might be up a generation that a parent has never sufficiently let go of their precious child, which is easy enough for me to talk about. I wonder how I will feel about this myself down the track if it comes to it. One of the goals of parenthood is to raise children to the point where they can be fully independent. But it's always hard for parents to imagine anyone being good enough for their children. Till, of course, you remember that they had to make do with less than perfect parenting themselves. Now, what's clear from this leaving is that marriage is never a private undertaking. It is a public leaving which necessarily affects other relationships. So ties which have been very close will never quite be the same again, and they never should be the same again. So that's the first bit of the pattern, a leaving. The second element mentioned is man and wife being united. That's why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife. And the language that's used is very strong. The old translation spoke about parents being left, leaving parents, and cleaving together. So we would say sticking together, slightly more modernly, or glued together for life. What's being called for is committed faithfulness, which is actually more a matter of the will than the emotions. Obviously, romance has its place. I'd better say that after Valentine's Day on Friday. But romance on its own is not enough. It's only really in Hollywood weddings that the marriage partners say, I do. If you think about it, that always leaves open the option of future change. I do love you now, but tomorrow who knows? Whereas Christian marriage calls for a promise. Will you love her? Yes, I will, in sickness and in health and so on. 
So shallow commitment is being ruled out. Just possibly, um, with that reading we had from Matthew in mind, it's just possible that in one or two situations some commentators feel that the Bible allows divorce uh, never as something desirable in its own right, as the lesser of two evils in one sense. But normally a change of circumstance doesn't give me the chance to end a marriage, nor indeed could you say a change of character would. That means I mustn't give any quarter to the idea that if over the years things aren't quite the way they once were, I'm free to give up on the relationship and I can decide that we weren't right for each other. We live in a sort of throwaway culture today. Um, If the toaster breaks, we don't bother to mend it, do we? We chuck it away. But we mustn't allow even the tiniest possibility that a marriage relationship in the future will ever be something we can just take to the tip, casually toss away. Just a little footnote on this. Um, Probably the biggest threat to lifelong faithfulness from all the evidence seems to be a lack of time spent together. We always focus on this when we do marriage courses in the church. Psychology Today did a survey of 300 couples asking what kept them together, and this is what they highlighted. And it's part of the casualty, I think, of busy lives, uh, career paths and things like that. As a family's life gets busier, this is one of the things that goes, because it never occurs to us to get out our diaries to book in time together in the way we do with time with friends or or business partners. I like the story about a Midwest farmer in America. He was in bed with his wife when a tornado hit the house and it ripped off the roof and sucked the two of them, still in bed, up into its funnel. And the wife at this point burst into tears. What in the world are you crying for, lady? asked the farmer. I can't help it, she answered. I'm so happy. This is the first time we've been out together in 20 years. <laughs> just say that um, is not what it means to be united here. Time is at least a part of it. The last part of the pattern is the man and the woman becoming one flesh. Verse 24 again. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. And that obviously refers to sexual union. But perhaps I should phrase it slightly differently and call it sexual reunion because verse 24 it begins grammatically with a link back to what's gone before and I guess the operation that God had just performed, taking the woman from the man. That's why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and the two become one flesh. It's a reunion. Originally when God removed the rib from Adam... The one became two, and now in the deepest of human relationships, the two become one once again. Which is why, of course, sexual intercourse can only rightly exist in the context of the lifelong commitment of marriage between a man and a woman. So it's not just a physical release a sexual encounter on a level with blowing my nose or satisfying hunger or something like that. It's intended by God to result in a wonderful, powerful interpenetration of identity. Two people, one flesh, bonded together at the very core of their being. Now, if we were a TNG service in the evening, I might have 
a few more notes to say on this topic, but I want to just be clear about one area, and uh, I'm not necessarily assuming this is an area of concern for all of us um, particularly, but in terms of our being influencers and praying for other people that we have um, interaction with, I thought it was very helpful the way Miles prayed for us to be able to sell this in our vision of uh, relationships to others, even people that think it's a very strange way to to talk. Let me try and highlight one area where this verse, it seems to me, is saying that much behavior today is sinful and wrong and harmful, and that is the area of casual sex. And what I want to say about that is that that term, if you ponder it, is is actually a contradiction in terms. It is a myth. There is no such thing if one flesh is the result of a sexual encounter. There's no such thing as casual sex. Physical union outside a marriage is a lie because it's expressing a commitment which doesn't exist. So the two people in that situation are saying something with their bodies... We belong to each other, and we're giving ourselves to each other, when, in fact, they don't belong to each other. And therefore, a beautiful sign of self-giving becomes a cheap lie, uh, a physical act that actually doesn't bear on the truth, a bit like Judas's kiss, in a way. That would be true in a one-night stand. It's easy enough to see it in that situation. It's even true... Uh, in a partnership where there is a commitment of a kind but one which stops short of the full self-giving implied in marriage. Well, I said I'd be bold at some points. Somebody's probably saying to themselves, just what I always thought, Christians have got it in for sex, haven't they? Well, not so. If you think about the last verse of our reading, 25, Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. I think that shows a positive view of what's just gone before. It wasn't as if Adam and Eve had a tumble in the grass and discovered sex by accident and then had to whisper to each other, oops, better not tell God about it. He's bound to get annoyed about this. No, it was God's idea. He invented it. And that's why Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Now, verse 25 is in the past tense. They were naked and they felt no shame. And that reminds us that this innocent state of affairs is past, and it's now sadly no more. But still, sex between husband and wife in the right setting, as God intended it, is very much getting a positive thumbs up. God saw that it was good. Well, I've whizzed on. Again, let me say... I realize these are difficult areas to cover quickly, and I'm happy for us to talk about them. Um, If you want to raise questions, that's absolutely fine to do that. Time is almost gone, but let me move. This is important to do this. From the pattern to consider, lastly, the prototype of marriage. Because the blueprint for marriage is not, in fact, the relationship of the man and the woman. Not according to elsewhere in the Bible. Uh, For example, Paul in Ephesians 5. He quotes in Ephesians 5, Genesis 2, our verses, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Then he continues, this is a profound mystery, 
So we're allowed to be tantalized, um, bewitched slightly by these verses. They are meant to be a puzzle uh, to us. This is a profound mystery, he says, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. That means that the marriage between man and woman in Eden is, if I can use the language of the art gallery, it's not an original, but a copy. The prototype is the eternal marriage between Jesus Christ and his people, the church. So there's much more going on in Eden than meets the eye. God didn't just throw man and woman together as a random experiment. There was nothing arbitrary about it. He didn't just decide that marriage would be this way as opposed to some other way on the roll of a dice. It's important. It means we can't tamper with marriage as if it doesn't really matter what it looks like. No, God invented marriage and he invented marriage deliberately so it would look like the relationship between Jesus and his church, which was a relationship planned by God from all eternity. And that relationship was the driver in time for Jesus, the true man, to leave his father's home, a leaving heaven, to search out and be united to his bride. That's why we're going to remember at communion that he laid down his life for her. I give you my body, he said at the Last Supper. He laid down his life for her, his bride at the cross, washing away her sin so that she can be spotlessly clean. There's an old hymn that puts it like this. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he brought her and for her life he died. And if I'm a Christian today, whether I'm married or single, in earthly terms, I am engaged together with other Christians to the Lord Jesus Christ. Our bridegroom is in heaven and the relationship is secure and there's going to be one day the ultimate royal wedding when those who love Jesus will be joined to him forever. I didn't want to leave this bit out. It's not explicit in these verses. It's the take of the rest of the Bible on them. But this is great news if we feel we've failed in this area, is it not? As we all have in many different ways. All of us have. We're all broken in different ways. And we're all broken in the area of our sexuality to a degree. And this idea of the prototype relationship between Jesus Christ and his people is therefore great news. Maybe we got something on our conscience long ago in the past for which Jesus Christ came to die on the cross for our sins. Maybe it's much more recent than that. We've been looking for an intimate relationship in the wrong place in some way. And we need to know that Jesus wants us for himself. He laid down his life for us so that we can be forgiven. Some of us here are married. Others will be in the future. And we need to remember that the marriage of a man to a woman, even though it's a lifelong partnership, isn't an eternal one. Your relationship with Christ, if you're a Christian, is. Some of us here aren't married. Uh, Some maybe wonder 
for whatever reason, whether they ever will be married. That could be for lots of different reasons. Maybe you're a woman and you're worried that single Christian men are in short supply and those that there are are so commitment-phobic that they'll never make the first move. It was a situation I used to encounter when working with students at St. Andrew the Great in Cambridge. Maybe some here are battling with same-sex attraction. Statistically, there are people in the church or in our orbit, certainly, who are. And maybe you're here today, and you're clear that a gay orientation isn't necessarily sinful, but equally you're clear that homosexual practice is not an option, and therefore you're making the courageous decision to be celibate. I'll to give you advance notice. We're going to have an evening in May to help all of us support and encourage folk in that situation. So lots of different reasons why we might be single if, uh, if we're single. Some others, singleness would be a great way of maximizing the time you have to serve God. I had the uh, older congregation at 9 o'clock. A number of people have been bereaved there, a different type of singleness there. There could be lots of reasons why people aren't married or don't marry. And that's fine, because marriage isn't the route to fulfillment, and singleness is not a barrier to fulfillment. But if I wonder, am I never going to have a loving, ongoing relationship? The answer's got to be no. If you're a Christian, you can and you do in the marriage which puts all other marriages into the shade. Let's just pray and respond to God's word for a moment as we do so. And we want to thank you, Heavenly Father, for that eternal love relationship. We thank you that if we're in Christ, we're loved with an everlasting love. As we've sung already this morning, he's the lover of our souls. And we want to respond by giving our love to him, by pledging that commitment to him. Help us to know how much value he puts on us. And we pray that we would take that love, that commitment, into all our other relationships as well, uh, marriage and others. We pray, Heavenly Father, for your help to think through the implications of the verses we've looked at this morning. For some, it's a matter of deep grief and pain even to do that exercise, but please be gracious to us. We thank you that you're a compassionate and loving God, and we trust you that your way is best. Please help us to understand your way and to commit ourselves to it. We thank you for grace to cover all our sins as well. Thank you for the lengths to which Jesus went in going to the cross. Thank you for the reminder of that as we share bread and wine now. We thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.